This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me today, we have a very special guest. You know her as the host of the Combing the Roots podcast, a Witness BCC podcast official. You know who I'm talking about. She's no stranger to Pastor Mike. Ali Henny, Ali, how you doing? I'm doing okay. How's everybody else out there doing? I guess and you too, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing okay. Look, I'm I'm recovering from a busy week, so but I'm doing I'm doing well, and I know you're out and about as well. So let's get into it. Last week we talked about this idea of how to raise justice-minded Black children with the man, the myth, the legend, the bearded one, Aaron James our pastor residents here at The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. And we received some amazing feedback, um, some great feedback from people. One one particular person I want to shout out is Jocelyn. Uh, Jocelyn and her friends listened to uh, the last episode, and she reached out to me and gave me some really encouraging feedback about what it's done for her and her heart, um, for her and her friends who come from Asian and Latinx communities. And so creating a deep sense of hope and longing in them, which was so encouraging to hear. So shout out to you, Jocelyn, and your whole crew for listening. Um, and I wanted to reapproach this from not just a Black father's perspective, but now from the perspective of Black motherhood. And so, Ali, in Combing the Roots, you had one particular episode entitled Black Motherhood in the Era of Trump, in the Trump age, so to speak. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to just give a summary of of the approach that you took with that, because I think it's instructive as we talk about um, how Black mothers approach oppressive uh, regimes or oppressive situations or um, just difficult events in the world. So can you tell us a little bit about that episode? Yeah. So in that episode, I talk about how my how my motherhood has really been forged in a place of resistance. So my, my oldest uh, is five years old. So she was an infant whenever Ferguson happened. And so my motherhood, um, as a, as a mother, I, I was a foster parent for, for a little bit before, um, I, I gave birth, uh, to my two children, but my, my, my oldest child that I've given, I've given birth to, we don't have any, any foster children, um, in the home or anything like that. But we, um, my motherhood was, was forged in this context of, raising a black child and an infant even at that point and watching the world sort of, I I say shift and it's not like there was very much that was different. I've always known that people were racist. I've always encountered racism, but there was something that was very, very distinct that happened with Ferguson that even that, that we hadn't, that I hadn't seen with, with Trayvon Martin. So I'm from Missouri. 
a, I know a lot of people who are St. Louisians who who live around the area, and so that the level of just of, of just vileness of it, it felt like people were, were literally just vomiting. White people were literally vomiting up their their residual racism. People who didn't even who were who were from Missouri but didn't even really live anywhere near that. It's just like it just brought out this visceral nastiness that I knew existed. And I knew that it existed even below the surface, but to see it, like to, 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 it's different whenever you just, whenever you just see it. It's one thing whenever you suspect it, but it's a completely different thing whenever you actually see it come out of people. And so seeing this thing come out of people, something that, that honestly, you know, I hate to get super spiritual, but it was just straight up demonic. And so it was, it was was. 100%. Like it just, and and so a lot of these people, were Christians. And a lot of these people were people who I had like shared church pews with. And so seeing some of this just demonic stuff come out of people, I was just like, this is, this is nothing unlike anything that I've ever seen before. And so I, I realized pretty quickly with my, with my oldest that her childhood, her formative years were going to be a lot different um, than mine were. You know, I, I grew up in the wake of the, uh, of the, LA riots and the Osage Simpson trial and, and all that. But I knew that there, that this was a moment in history. And I knew that my oldest, um, cause at that time, you know, I only had one kid. So I didn't, I didn't realize I was going to have another, another child who actually was born on inauguration day um, of 2017. And so, you know, this, this whole thing of, of recognizing that, that we're in this, that we're in a moment and that my oldest child would have the opportunity in her life to read about the things that we were watching on TV in her history books mm-hmm. and then yeah. wonder where her father and I were at whenever this was happening and what we were doing. Right. And I just, I realized like I, I, I wasn't passive before, but I realized that I have to take a more active stance lest this whole thing just 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 hurt my child lest it lest it just the culture the racist culture that 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 is around us unless it just swallows swallows her whole so in that so in that episode what really what inspired that episode and what i unpack in that episode is what it means for me as a mother of young children who was sort of born in this moment of history what it means for me as a mother to be able to raise them and to be able to raise them in in a way that they that they love their blackness that they that they aren't um, being oppressed by by the culture that we're that we're in now. Yeah, and when I listen to that episode, I really hope people go back and listen to it. It's on the Combing the Roots podcast, which you should already have subscribed, rated, and reviewed. But if you haven't, it's okay. There's grace at the foot of the cross for you right now if you go and flip over and subscribe Amen. to that podcast. Yes, hallelujah. Um, <laughs> you know, when I listened to it, it was interesting because I thought about, um, and I mentioned this on Pastor Mike a few years back, the scenario incident that I had at a department store um, was actually a, a hardware store um, where someone called me the N-word, just completely unprovoked. And I remember the first thought was I was angry, I was upset, I was flooded with emotion. But then my next thought was directly a prayer of lament, Lord, how am I going to raise kids in a world like this? Like, Lord, how am I going to raise kids in a world where they can be oppressed and they're slurs and they can unprovoked be called names and, and all kinds of things that their racism will, that racism will 
um, come directly to their front door, so to speak? And also, how can I raise kids in a world where the church in general will gloss over that or say it's not a direct concern that must be addressed within the scope of spiritual formation or discipleship? And that's the interesting thing that you mentioned is the idea of Christians engaging in this racist behavior. And as we sit back and think about that, it really increases our vigilance as Black parents um, to ensure that we provide a healthy, affirming, and also justice-centered environment for our kids um, so that they appreciate and value the dignity of all people, um, including the neighbors that would fall outside of the church's you know, typical idea of who is valuable and who should be heard and who is dignified and honored. And I, I experienced that as a Black father, and I experience and engage and interact with that differently than Black mothers do. And so as a Black mother, what's different? Because Aaron and I talked about some things, and and fathers think in a very interesting, we think in a very interesting risk mitigation, we have a risk mitigation uh, compass. We think about trying to minimize the risk for our kids in the future so that they can succeed. But I think sometimes we treat our kids as as almost like high achievers rather than as human beings sometimes. I think it's just the the thing of, of fatherhood. Like I think we just we sometimes skip past our, our kids' humanity and we're thinking about them achieving. Like what are barriers to their to their success? What are barriers to prosperity? What are barriers to generational wealth? Like that's how we think. That's how people like Aaron and I tend to think. Um, because we want to make a generational impact with our kids, we want them to flourish. But how is it different from mothers? And how are mothers engaging in a time like this and in a you know, a a system that is extremely racially charged and and oppressive in many ways? How are how are mothers engaging in this? So I think that that you kind of hit the nail on the head right there, is that is that fathers, I think, you know, it definitely is. A, a risk mitigation. It definitely is. If you want to talk about, if we want to say the controversial word of like evolution, I know that word is is kind <laughs> right, of yeah, is kind of yeah. controversial. Some folks, but I think that it really is like this evolutionary um, thing where it's like men are about kind of protecting the the bloodline and kind of making sure that 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 successive generations. That's why men are able to procreate a lot more than than women are. And so I think that there's kind of this this thing that's that's built in. Um, um, to men, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's the, it's the unique way that God has has created men, and so I think that it's definitely good that that men are thinking of their of their children in terms of achievement and success, because uh, achievement and success means achievement and success of the continuation of that bloodline. It means a, a continuation of the of the of the family, and I think that that's something that that God uh, has has placed in you, and I think that that's that that's something that's great. For me as a mother, it's a little bit different. I think that for mothers, we definitely care about success. We definitely think that those things are important. But there's also, a, a, I think, more of a bent towards safety. There's more of a bent toward, um, it's not that men aren't protectors, but it's almost like the the women are more, where, where men, it's more of kind of a big picture protection so it's more of a, of a of a looking at it in terms of the of the grand scheme of things what's going to happen where women are more sort of like right now in the moment 
what does this look like? What are the, what are the different sa- what are the different safety things that, that could happen? How are things going to, how are, so, so the risk mitigation, I guess, is, is more kind of in the, in the moment a little bit. And I think that whenever you even think about this in terms of, of black motherhood, I really have a, have a theory that mothers are the ones that impart culture. Mothers are the ones that kind of, um, teach that we're, we're the ones that, that impart, that impart culture. We're the ones who, who impart some of that, that, uh, the, the substance of life. And what I mean by that is I don't mean, I'm not to say to you that the fathers don't, don't contribute anything significant to their children because they, because they absolutely, they absolutely do. But I, whenever I think of in the Bible, I think of how whenever Paul is writing, um, to Timothy and he talks to, he talks about his, his grandmother and mother and how they imparted the faith to him. And for yeah. Him not to yes. for him not to not to stray from the faith that they that they that they taught him. Um, it wasn't necessarily that Timothy didn't have a father. I'm not sure how much we we really know about about Timothy. I'm a little bit foggy on my New Testament knowledge right now. If you'll, you'll, I'm in seminary, so I can only hold so many things in my mind right now. <laughs> right, um, right. So for, so forgive me if I lapse on some on some things. But I think that 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 principle that that mothers typically tend to be the ones who the fathers are definitely teaching about the faith. But there's something in mothers that that there's that there's almost this this kind of nurturing and forging aspect that in the formation of children that that happens. And I don't and I don't know if I'm articulating that well, but it's almost like fathers run at a different. It's like we're doing the same things, but fathers run on a different track than mothers do. And so whenever you know you start talking about raising justice minded kids, I think that that fathers often kind of think in the same ways that you and Aaron were talking, where you're thinking about the, the success and you're thinking about, well, what about building, what about building generational wealth? You're thinking about, about kind of some of those big picture things. Whereas a mother, I'm thinking about, I'm just trying to keep this baby alive today. Yes. So I'm yes. just I'm just trying to make sure that whenever we go to school, whenever we go to church, whenever we go wherever it is that we are, that this child is being forged and is being nurtured on today. And so those both of those things are are needed. And once again, it's not that mothers aren't thinking toward the future because I definitely think toward my children's future, well, like their their names. I, I named both of our daughters and I definitely their their names are significant and that and this thinking more mm-hmm. toward yes. their future. My my oldest name um it means her her name means strong helper and justice and righteous. Um and then her her uh and then my youngest her name means liberator and then her middle name She's, she's named after Harriet Tubman. And so I'm, so in naming both of those children, I was looking toward the future in naming them, but my inner, but my day-to-day interaction, my day-to-day cares and concerns for them is really about imparting my culture to them. And so, you know, we're, we're an interracial family. And so my husband is, is white. And so I see the need even more so to teach my children my culture. And so it's like my kids can yes. get white culture any place. My kids can go we we live in a city that is like 90 something percent white I think or maybe it just like it's maybe like 89% white or whatever but it's super white. Every place that they're at right now is super white. They're going to see white culture, they're going to get white people. It's not to diminish that, but they're but they're going to see that. But at home, the music we listen to, we try to we try to um to, to to shows and movies try to try to make sure that we're watching shows and movies and stuff that our kids um that that center blackness so 
for instance, mm. my my youngest, um, she just turned two. She sees Batman and thinks that Batman is Black Panther. So that's, <laughs> right, so, right, so, that's right. so, so usually a lot of that kids. That shift, though, that's important. Yeah. That shift is important, though. Yeah, we plan on showing her she's really into Spider-Man, but she's only really seen Spider-Man masked. So the first Spider-Man movie that we're going to expose her expose her to is Into the Spider-Verse. Because first of all, because it's a con, it's a cartoon, and second of all, wow. because because the the, char- the main character is black, and so you know I'm not saying that like everything's just like black and be black and be black in my house, but it's just that that we've been very intentional, and so that, that was something that that really spoke to me whenever my daughter got a Batman toy. I think it was from Sonic or something like that, and she's Black Panther, Black Panther, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> Black Panther, B- Black Panther. <laughs> Yeah, she calls him Black Panther. I don't I even I know. I but like, that. I have I, uh, my, my husband got me a big Black Panther poster uh, for for my birthday last year. That it's in one of the rooms. It hangs in one of the rooms that they're that they're always playing in and stuff. So I try to keep I try to keep blackness front and center. My kids, my girls sing Motown. Like they can sing every word to "I Heard It from the Grapevine." Like or "Heard It from the Grapevine." They can sing. They can sing every word. Um, they they know they know that type of stuff. I really you know I know that we're talking about raising Justin minded kids but you know my kids are so young they're 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 five and two and so for me right now what that means for me as a as a as a mother is imparting my culture to them because i've seen um in my own life because my mother was the same way with me my mother bought me so many black children's books and i'm like Mm -hmm. mom why like like why are you doing this? <laughs> like so many books about Harriet Tubman, so many books about the Underground Railroad, so many books about Martin Luther King, so many books just about Black people just doing stuff. And I'm like, why? But now I'm, I'm really thankful for that because now I have those books that I can pass down to my to my children. But my mom was just really, really super intentional about that because I grew up in a context that was not the same, but was somewhat similar to what my to what my daughters are growing up in right now. And so I've come out the way that I am. Y'all, y'all know how I am a little bit. And if you don't, you better ask somebody. Um, but like <laughs> but, let them know. Let them know. Let them know. I'm telling I'll tell you. But yeah, but like I that's that's the that's the battle that I see mothers fighting is that we live in a world that centers whiteness. We live in a world that tells us all the time that we are not worthy, that we're not worthy of dignity, that we're not worthy of respect. But those messages start very young. It's not like you pop out and and come as a fully formed adult and start receiving messages about yourself as a Black person. Those those messages start from the time that, that you're little, um, I'm not going to get the quote directly, but in The Fire Next Time, James Baldwin actually talks about this. He talks about how um, Negro children, from the moment they, they start to breathe in this world, uh, basically they, they, are, they are confronted with the reality that whiteness is superior and that they're inferior and that they, and, and that they um, are, are, are worth less. And so that's something that, that and, and that's not a direct quote, that's a mm-hmm. summary of, of Baldwin, but he, but he talks about that in the fire next time. And so for me as a mother, recognizing that, that from the moment my Negro child draws breath in the world that they're taught that, that whiteness is, in, is, is superior and that blackness is inferior. I'm fighting that battle as the, as the imparter of my, of, of my culture, as the imparter of my faith. I'm fighting that battle from every moment. 
I'm fighting that battle and teaching my kids. And and I say fighting the battle. It's not like I'm out here. So, cause I think that it, it could be very uh, easy to be in a place where that energy is very frenetic, where it's a very kind of chaotic energy, where yes, it's a very, yes, where so it's good. a very almost kind of overprotective. Like it could just, it could just for lack, want of a better word. It's just, you can do that in a really weird energy and you can do that in a really weird place. And that's not where my motherhood is. That's not, I, I I'm about like one of the things that, that I am really big on is peaceful motherhood is not, wow. is, is, is not is strong motherhood. Cause, cause motherhood I think can be very fragile. There's some aspects yes. of just from, just from the, the act of giving birth. Um, it makes your body very, very fragile. And um, especially if you're somebody like me, who's also very sick during the pregnancy. And so I still feel in my body the effects of, of being bedridden for, for uh, cumulatively almost two years with both of my kids. And so I feel those effects in my body. So you feel that and it, and it can definitely weigh on your mental state. It can weigh, it weighs on your physical state. It can weigh on, on your emotional, on your emotional state. But something that I really try to do is to, is to parent out of a place that's peaceful. And I don't all, and I'm not always successful at that. I'm not, you're going to hold myself up as like the epitome of any, of anything, because, you know, like I'm traveling right now with my, with my children and my kids, my oldest, especially is, is in a phase. I mean, kids are always in a phase, but my, but my oldest is in a phase right <laughs> yeah. now. And so she kind of, we, we were on a, on a long road trip and probably about eight or nine o'clock last night, she had just had had it. And so it's, it's dark. She was getting bored and I'm just like, I need for you to listen, <laughs> you know, with, with clap, right. with hand claps and everything. And it's like, <laughs> like, it's like, I was like, I need for you to listen, hand yeah. claps and everything. So, I mean, you know, that, that wasn't, I mean, it, I wasn't angry, but it was just like that, that wasn't quite one of my peaceful moments. Um, I'll right. say, you know, I wasn't, right. I wasn't all the peaceful energy at that, in that moment, but I try to try to, you know, do that, those things from a place of peace and from a place of rest in the Lord. Like at the end of the day, I can only do so much to protect my children. Allie can hmm. only do, wow. I can only do so much in, in my strength. And I think that, that a lot of times, you know, cause, cause as mothers, there's a lot of things that, that we, that we worry about that, you know, you think, Oh my goodness, this kid can, they can, they can, we're walking with a sucker in their mouth and they could trip and fall and, and gouge the, the, the stick back in their throat. And like, you, you think of it, maybe I'm the only person who does this, but no, that's me. That's me. I've been thinking that all the time. I'm that person in the marriage. I'm like, man, look, don't do this because you can suck the balloon back into your throat and, then it just and you can't get it out. And my wife is like, what are you talking about? Like, why are you worried about that? I'm like, but it could happen. Like, it's statistically possible. And so yes, we just keep yes. it away from her. She's like, you need to live, you need to okay. loosen up. Like, oh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Yes, but, I, like, I mean, but, I def- but you're touching on that point though. Like we we can't. There's only so much we can do, right? There's only so much we can do. You know, I pray. I I I have because I have two girls. Some of my concerns are a little bit different than to be a mother of boys. To be a mother of black boys right, right now, um, I just I like I just can't even. My mind can't even go there with the with the with the concerns and the fears that you would have. For a black boy, I mean, you, you, I, I always think of Tamir Rice, and I look at him, and I'm just like, that was a baby. 
Like they they murdered a baby playing playing with his playing with his toy gun in the park, and um, that's something else that motherhood will do to you too. Is like you realize like oh my gosh these are just these are these are babies these are kids they don't know nothing, and so to be a mother of of black boys right now I can only speak as a as a mother of black girls but but as a mother of of, of a black boy. I just can't even fathom the fear. And so I don't want to want to diminish that. And I'll say, well, you know, just be peaceful. But at the end of the day, whenever I, my, my, my oldest is going to kindergarten this year. And so she is uh, going to summer school, uh, a kindergarten summer school right now at the public school um, for the first time. And so, you know, there, there's even been some things that that's happened in that context that I'm just like, the Lord was watching out for my child. The Lord and the Black community were watching. Were watching out yeah, for, yeah. for for my child. She she got put in the wrong line and was gonna and was they were gonna send her home to like walk home. And we don't live that far from the school. I mean, we live we live like oh nine hundred feet from the school. But they were gonna put her in the in the walker line. And there was a there was an older Black boy who saw her and brought her back to the school and was like, "No, she's not. Like she this isn't this is." And there's way more of the situation um, that happened. Um, but it was but it was a Black boy, and then there's another Black teacher that was there that that helped her uh, to be able to be able to find me and everything but it's like you know i realize that there's, there's so much that is out of my hands and yeah. ultimately like i have to trust in my lord that he is going mm, yes. to protect and i don't have the the requisite theology for the times when the, I have I don't have enough theology for for what happened to Tamir Rice. Like I don't have you. Know, I'm I'm in seminary. I don't yeah. I don't have my my theology. It doesn't it doesn't cover that. I don't understand why that why that black child was murdered. I don't understand why Trayvon was murdered like that. I don't understand why Mike Brown um, was was murdered like that, or Laquan McDonald, or that 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 young man in Dallas um, a couple years ago who was who was killed trying to yeah. leave a party, not in the party, even though he didn't deserve to be killed for going to a party, going to a high school party, yeah. but was trying to leave a bad situation and got killed. I don't have yeah, Jordan Edwards. Jordan yeah. Edwards. I couldn't think of his name. Yes. I I don't have the theology to cover that, but I just I just have to trust in the Lord and to trust that that uh, you know Job says he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, yes. so- and, and this is this that's that is the point that is so difficult. And you mentioned one thing in particular that I think really is why I wanted to have you on this podcast is because I can relate in this sense. I don't have kids that are going off to college like Aaron does. Like, I don't have grown kids like Aaron does. And when I was talking with him, I'm thinking aspirationally. And the point about fatherhood, motherhood, risk mitigation, all that stuff is so true that you are bringing home is I think about my kids tactically. Like I think about my kids, like, what are they going to do 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Like, who are they going to run into? How are they going to break oppressive systems in the workplace, <laughs> you know, that's right. like how I'm mm-hmm. thinking about them. I'm thinking about them strategically, tactically, like I'm preparing them for a battle that they don't know is coming, but I know, I know it's coming. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when it's coming, but I'm preparing them for that battle. That's how men think typically. But now I'm having to take a step back and, you know, my wife is helping me so much with this. It's, it's, it's more so in the daily everyday humanity of our daughter and soon to be son. It's just in their everyday humanity that she's working to transmit like this is how they need to live. And these are the skills that are going to be so important for their upbringing. 
and for their acculturation and their encouragement, their affirmation, all these other things. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 that's really important. But I'm thinking like 10, 15 years down the line (laughs) and black mothers are like, well, my kid needs to make it through the week. You know, like she needs to be okay tomorrow. She needs to be okay in three days from now, you know. And one of the things that drove this point home about about capturing every moment, thinking about every moment is the Netflix um, limited series, When They See Us. And Ali hasn't seen it yet because she's just been ripping and running in seminary. So I'm not going to ruin it for you. I don't think we can spoil it per se, but I think there's just some so many really great things that happen. Um, so many really great portrayals, I should say. It's not a great situation, but there's so many, so many great um, portrayals that happen and such great conversation that we'll have at length later on the podcast with a, with a group of people. But the idea is when you look at the mothers and fathers, especially the mothers, I think Ava's portrayal of Black motherhood is spot on in its complication and its layered sense of there were times when the mothers were facing something that they wouldn't tell the sons. And the mothers were facing something that they would hide from the sons who were either incarcerated or detained or what have you, preparing for trial. And as I sat back and thought about that, I it, it really shook me because I said, how much do Black mothers have to carry? And how much weight and how much pain and how much trauma? There was one particular scene that stuck with me that I will tell you. It's a scene with a mother and a son. And I forget this particular son's name. Um, I think it's Antron, I believe. And Antron says, I... You know, why it feels like everybody in the world hates me. And she says, I know it feels like that, but I have enough love for you to make up for everybody else. And it shook me, but it also made me think the consequences of carrying that for young mothers of young children. Like, is that why we later on face so many? health difficulties within the black community. Is that why? Because it's almost like you have to overcome all the obstacles that they're facing on a daily basis with a supernatural Christ-centered, God-given love that comes from a place I don't even know where it comes from, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing. Like, it was different for for me and Aaron. Like, when I when I sat back and I was like, man, he's sending a, a, a his daughter off to college. And that's amazing. But at the same time, like I'm sitting back and I'm saying, my daughter's 17 years from college. And man, like, how do I how do I transmit this on a day-to-day for a toddler? How do I create a healthy environment for, you know, a a a child that's growing up in a world and doesn't know how to navigate? And I think the culture point you made is so important because if we submit our kids to white center culture only as normative. If we do that, they won't have any capacity to understand justice and dignity. If that is the only Mm -hmm. thing that we show, we are limiting their capacity. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. They think, oh, we just want to be black. You want to put your blackness above your your Christianity and all these other um, very weird critiques that just arise only for black people and no one else. And so I I sit back and I say, "Well, well, why do you think that is? I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that if if my kids see that whiteness and white 
um, expression, however it is, especially a version of Christianity, is normative. It's the way in which they're supposed to view. They're limiting their capacity to appreciate other image bearers and other contributions. Like that directly limits what they can do. That directly limits um, how they can progress in a world and care for their neighbors well as Christ has commanded us to. So (laughs) as we think about but as we think about that, you're talking about it from a standpoint of someone who was raised and cultured well in, in black culture. Some of us, and I'll throw myself in there, got great, well-meaning parents, but it wasn't really black-centered. And there wasn't really that acculturation. And so now I'm trying to learn how to do that because some of the customs that would naturally be in place in black households were were, were not absent in my house. But we're more so um, underemphasized, right? So, how would you suggest that people who don't have that culture, like you're talking from a place of my mother did this really well, and for some of us, we're like, bro, we don't even know where to start. Like, how would you how would you say that that environment and that acculturation has to begin for young children? Well, first of all. You said a mouthful in like those two minutes that you were talking. <laughs> you hit so many things that I'll just go like, ahead. Do with it. Not do with it. Do with it. My mind, my my mind is like poof. poof. So, I'll, so, so I'll work. I'll, I'll try to work backward. I'll see if I can if I can work backward with the point. So there is something that I have just in like the last two months become aware of. Um, it's a theory it's called, and I'm probably not even pronouncing this right, but I think it's pronounced negresance because um, it's a French mm. word, but there is a psychologist called uh, whose name is William Cross. And he actually wrote a book somewhat on this topic called shades of black. And um, he, but he has this theory called negresance theory. And hopefully it looks like negrescence, um, but I think that it's uh, supposed to be a French word and so i'm going to make butcher french um and call it negresance so i'm sorry if that's not how if that's if that's <laughs> not how it. It. it is pronounced because i'm literally just encountering this in in my in my studies um have just kind of kind of run across it uh somewhere in mm. my studies and he talks about he there's a there's a, a an article i think it's from the, the early 1970s and so basically he's talking about how black people have sort of come, it, how, how people have gone from being Negro to being black. And he talks about kind of this whole mm-hmm. cultural identity shift that happened after the death of Martin Luther King. And so he talks about how their, how people became more conscious of their blackness and how that, and how that's looked and some of the stage, and some of the stages of identity development. If you know anything about, about psychology, um, if you've taken my, my undergraduate degree was in psychology, but psychology works a lot on theories it works a lot on um, stages of development even that's like a whole kind of uh, discipline in psychology is kind of understanding mm-hmm. humans through understanding stages of development so he goes so cross goes through these um, stages of black identity development and so he talks about there's one phase i think it's like the third phase where it's called the immersion versus immersion phase and so that's kind of a phase where where people get into it and i think that um 
uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum also talks about this in Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting in the yes, Cafeteria. I think that she she, does. she, she oh, references goodness. this um, in, in one of the chapters in there. But it's kind of, you know, you're, you're getting, you're being immersed in your own culture. And for some people who come into this, this is like the first time that they've really recognized that they, that they are black. And so they are trying to kind of immerse themselves and, and, and get, in with all the black things and kind of understand all the black things. And so then the identity progresses from there. So I say all that to make this point about how, how do we, for, for people who, um, maybe didn't grow up in such an enculturated environment. How do you do this? Where, where do you start? Well, it's like, I don't necessarily think that it's a, that it's a how to manual, but this is something that I'm encountering a lot because I think that there is, and I, and I, I think it's not particular to our generation, but I think that because of the time that we came up in is that there are a lot of people that kind of bought black people also who bought into colorblind ideology because it was sort of like, Oh, the, the whites only yes. signs are oh gone. The, the colored Ooh. the colored signs are gone. So so there's no evidence of racism anymore. And actually, Cross in in some of his theory, he kind of talks about some of that and 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 how and how some people stayed kind of in that Jim Crow era of thought about racism. I've said that before about white people, but it's also true about black people, um, how some of us have stayed in this Jim Crow understanding of racism. So we don't even have Mm. the cultural tools to be able to see our own oppression. So we don't even have, so, so we think that whenever somebody calls us articulate and well-spoken, that that is a compliment. And so some of us don't have the cultural tools to be able to recognize Ooh, this is something that, that maybe isn't, isn't good. And to, and to follow that. And it's not that people are dumb, but just aren't able to follow some of these things that, that benefit white people, that make white people not have to, have to think about, about their racism. It's not that, they, that, that the people aren't smart. It's just that it hasn't been followed to its logical end a lot of times. And so there are people, mm-hmm. even in our mm-hmm. generation, who have been kind of sold on this colorblind thing um james cone talks about how hopefully i don't get in, in trouble for for referencing james nah, cone nah, we good. On, this po- we good. on this podcast we, good. Um, but we james- are just fine we are just fine keep going <laughs> yeah hopefully hopefully we don't get jamar does come and be like no uh bursting the door we did a whole um, podcast on him we ain't okay. got no boogeymen around here okay no boogeymen right. no boogie women all right okay so yeah all right so so james cone and i believe it's in the black theology of liberation it might be black theology and black power but i'm thinking it's in the black theology of liberation how he talks about how the the road to integration is a one-way street that the negro must travel alone um that's pretty much a direct quote. I'm terrible at direct quoting things, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that that's, a, that that's a direct quote. And this whole idea of integration, that somehow, you know, the, the white man's ice is colder than ours. So we have to, yes. so we have to yes. enter into their spaces and be accepted by them. And a lot of people accepted that. Now we can sit here, and, and I want to be careful about how I say this, because we can sit here in 2019 and say how that didn't work. That mess didn't work. It didn't benefit anybody. But people who were becoming parents in like the 70s, um, you think the civil rights movement was over basically in mm-hmm. 1968, 1969. So p- people who were becoming parents in the 70s, not even a full decade after the civil rights movement, they had a different outlook. People who were becoming parents in the 80s, 20 something years after the civil rights movement, 
they had a different outlook. And so it was really mm-hmm. an experiment. So I don't say that to detract from, from our parents and, and from our aunties and from our older cousins at all. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that at all. But we realize that that don't work. But unfortunately, what's happened is that we is that we have a generation of black people, some of us, that that just that we didn't we didn't have those those touch points. We didn't have those those tools because we were because we were so set in integrating these spaces. So to bring in, well, how do we help enculturate our children? I, it's not necessarily that you that, that you like you turn on BET and just leave BET on all the time. Or, <laughs> please don't. Or the, oh my or the goodness! Bounce please network. Don't. I don't know if you've heard of the Bounce Network. Bounce Network. Is I have. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I have. But it's not that you. It's not that you turn on Bounce. It's not that, like I said, you know, it's not that you have like like Motown music playing twenty five eight. It's not that you do that type of stuff. But it is an intentionality. I think that has to that has to come hmm, with it. It's yes, an intentionality yes. that. In certain spaces, in certain times, who do you choose to center? What do you choose to center? If you're going to buy your daughter a, a doll, do you choose to get the white doll? Or do you special order the black doll? If you, if you have mm. if given, if given the option. So mm. just wow. a very practical thing. My girls have several babies. My girls have... Almost, I guess because they've gotten um, some dolls and stuff for like uh, for, for birthdays and stuff like that, so they have a few white dolls, um, which is which is fine. Um, but like I think my like my my daughter has a Skipper doll. Skipper kind of looks a little bit Latina um, to me. If she's if she's not, she looks like she's a, she could pass for a Latina. Um, and she has a Chelsea, mm-hmm. which is a, which is a white Barbie. Um, but my kid, my daughters also have the the black Barbies. Um, they have like they like all their little babies or little baby alive, whatever is black, and that that was a very very, some of that has been family members being being aware, even even uh, on my on my husband's side of the family being aware and getting them dolls that represent them. Um, so my girls have have a rainbow of dolls, but most of the dolls that they have are black and brown dolls. Um, it's you know I made sure like we kind of slip Motown Magic on Netflix into their into their little rotation. It's like oh hey watch watch this thing. Um, but I think my husband even did that. It was like oh look at this Motown. Okay hey, how about you watch this and they. They love mm. it. They call it ABC because they don't understand Motown. So they call it ABC because that's, that's the theme, <laughs> right, the right. theme song of it is, is ABC by the Jackson 5. And so they, they absolutely love it. Um, they, 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 they live for that show. But it's, doing, it's, it's making those kind of conscious choices about we, we, don't, we, we have several uh, Christian radio stations in my town, um, but we don't listen to the Christian radio station. I turn on whenever I'm in the car and I have my phone. I turn on a gospel station on my Amazon music and we, and that's, and that's what we play and that's what we have. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what we have um, playing in the house. So they're still getting the word. They're still, they're still hearing Jesus music. And we don't listen. I mean, like I said, my, my girls also listen to Motown. It's a little bit, whatever, but then that's to say, you know, we're not just like exclusive, like, Oh my goodness, you know what we can't. Cause I, cause I, I, you know, I, I really like '90s alternative rock music. That that was that's that's, <laughs> right, my, that's right, my stuff. Right. Um, like that's that that's that's my stuff. That that's that's part of who of who I am. Um, I grew my both of my parents had very eclectic music tastes, and so I grew up with a, like a lot of different types of music around my house. So I share that stuff with them too. But it's framed in the context of of normalizing. Like this is who we are as black people because there's more than one way to be black and it's not just like here let's take the stereotypes of blackness so we don't have to eat fried chicken and collard greens and cornbread every every night right, in order to embody right. a black don't want to be a caricature you know, 
you don't have to be a caricature. Embody, like if, if you're black, you, you are already embodying blackness. And so I think that it's, that it's really important that, you know, we don't, we don't sit and caricature our culture and think, well, I'm not really authentically black because, but it's more about your posture of, of how you're, you're parenting and, and, and what you're choosing to center and what you're choosing to, to lift up and to, and to care about. And, and, and for me, I, I'm just, I'm big on culture and I don't mean necessarily like the things that are typically black culture, but just big on teaching your children. This is why we do things. This is where this comes from. This is, this is, this is, this is, this is who, this is who you are. So, you know, the last thing that I'll say on that is that this, this past week, my oldest got to participate in something called the Black History Summer Academy. And it's something that, um, in, in my city, it's been going on for the better part of 20 years. I think they took a little bit of a break for a while, but it's been going on for the better part of 20 years. And, at this summer academy, they they learned about their history. They learn about not just Black history, but they also learned about some of the Black history this year in the in the city that we live in. And um, they have like a, a rite of passage ceremony at the end for the high school girls who graduated this past school year. And they do this whole kind of thing. It's a kind of this whole like Pan African um, celebration that that happens, wow. and the girls walk out all in white. Um, it's 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 really it's very it's very interesting. They have uh, they have like little boys playing drums. It's it's a really it's, it's super long. It was like a two hour long set. Just a ceremony was two wow. hours long. Uh, but we were at this thing for like four hours um, at this at this ceremony because we because we ate and then there was like a little store that the kids who who had gone through the academy they had made little things to put on. But that was a moment where my daughter because we're in, we're in such a such a white context where she was with probably the most black people that she had been with um, in a really, in a really long time. I mean, the, the most black people that she would ever remember being around for sure. And she was looking around and she's like, everybody here is black. Every, there's so many black mm. people here. Mm. Wow. And so like, like there were so many people who were there who, who looked like her. And it was something that was, that was phenomenal and, and tremendous for, for her because she was seeing, because there, there, you know, there's black kids at, at her school and, the, and, and at her kindergarten school is, is fairly diverse for, for our area. But she was able to see where it was mostly black people who were there. And that was something that it was just putting her in that space it was now that space was about learning about history and culture, but it was just putting her in. It was putting her in that space. And so, if you're somebody that, that you that you don't attend um, a black church, I suggest like visiting black churches. We do that. My family, my family will will do that on a Sunday. Um, we'll we'll go we'll go to a black church and and worship there. Um, if whenever if and when um, we're able to do it, like we'll probably visit a black church um, next week while we're while we're traveling. And so it's just it's being really intentional to put your child in spaces. But then also for you as a parent, you have to get in touch with your blackness and get in touch with who with who you are. Not and it doesn't have to be performative or caricature or anything like that. But I think it's so important because I've run into so many folks who just who just they they are having their own racial awakening, yes, their yes. own coming into identity. And so I think that that we have to work, we have to work through that too. And so that's I, I've said a whole lot, but that's but that's the thing. Yeah, that's really helpful. It's funny that you mentioned that as you talk about recognition, like your daughter recognizing, oh, well, you know, everyone here is black. I remember when our daughter first started recognizing faces, 
And I think it's just because, you know, within our church is a predominantly black church and overwhelmingly black church. And there's also all the friends that we had, like we have a a multi-ethnic support system, but a lot of the friends that she was seeing and she was placed in front of as she was recognizing faces as a baby, they were just all black. And so I I remember we introduced her to someone. I think we're out at the mall and we ran into someone and they happened to be white. We introduced her, you know, which obviously, you know, it just, it's just, it's just a, a, a polite, I should say, it's just a polite ritual. You know, you're not actually introducing your child to anyone. They don't recognize that. But the right, way she right. looked at her, my wife and I, we looked at each other like, wait, what? Like, it was almost like suspicion. Like, it was almost like, <laughs> it was almost like hesitation. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I was like, oh, she probably has not ever seen anyone white and recognize their face based upon the people who are in our space, mm-hmm. right? Now, that's something that quickly changed mm-hmm. and adjusted over time um, because we interact with so many of our, our, of our friends who are, who are white or, or, or other ethnicities. But I think the intentionality was, what would it look like? I remember hearing Samuel DeWitt Proctor talk about this. He said, my idea of what Blackness was, was trained in a world where my teachers were Black, my, the postman was Black, the people I interacted with were Black. My teachers were my Sunday school teachers. My church was Black. And so I didn't think there were any limits to what I could do because there were always Black people around me. Like, I didn't realize what was happening mm. until I stepped out of that. And my parents prepared me, but he said, I just didn't. I, I never thought there was any occupation or any particular job that was foreign to me or that was off limits to me. And so what would it, what does it look like to raise kids with intentionality? And I think you 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 hit the nail on the head in the idea of how we navigate the world. Like how do we choose to navigate the world? We cannot necessarily change everything about the world, but we can make a conscious choice and decision with how we navigate the world and how our families navigate that world. And making some intentional choices I think of very small choices, like where we spend our dollar, (laughs) you know, like where we go to eat, you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like when I hear local, when I see local owned or when I see black owned, like I'm actually saying, well, I actually want to bring my family here. Not because I don't eat at, that's the only restaurants Mm -hmm. they eat at, but because they actually need to see a transition where they're not just seeing people interact with them on Sunday morning in a service context. And they're not just seeing people interact with them on special events who look like them. But also, they're seeing us actually purchase from them <laughs> so that there's no suspicion as they grow older and say, yes. oh, I thought servers, I thought, you know, a restaurant or servers are supposed to be white because those are nice restaurants, quote unquote, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just a lot of the, the little things, how we choose to navigate that space, it means so much. Now, one final question here as we talk about it theologically, because that's just something that we're we're deep in as as people who pastor, but beyond that, as also believers in Jesus, trying to raise our kids in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord, how does this interact with theology and how does this interact with our faith? Because there's already the challenge of of introducing a very complex, it's simple, but also a very complex theological, you know, reasoning to our kids as they navigate the world. But then there's also how Christianity has been drenched in whiteness and white culture and even westernized culture as well, individualism. 
how do we navigate this theologically in your view? Yeah. So, wow, that, that is, <laughs> that is like almost its own, its own podcast in, in another, yeah, yeah. In this itself. cliff it's notes, like, we know that's, 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 yo, yeah, that's almost its own <laughs> podcast in and of itself. But ultimately, you know, I think that, that going back to the image of God, going back, bringing it back to who we are, that, that we, that every person is an image bearer, that every person is deserving of dignity and is deserving of worth because we are made in his image. I think that that's, that that's the primary thing is an understanding and teaching our children that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and that they, that they are made in the image of God. I think that, 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 that tamps down. It doesn't necessarily completely uh, erases it. It doesn't necessarily completely prevent it. But I think that it's something that we are giving our kids the tools to be able to deal with the forces of white supremacy that want to, um, that, that wants to create self-hatred in our children. And so I think that, you know, for, for our children hmm. to, to hmm. understand that, that their, that their dark skin or their light skin, their, 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 their olive colored skin or their brown skin or their hair that is really kinky, tight, uh, coiled hair, or their hair that might be looser curls or or waves, um, that their their that their thick lips, that their that their broad noses, that their that that those things were created in the image of God. So if so so I think that that's that that is a starting point for Amen. for Amen. us. Mm-hmm. And I think that that whenever we can whenever so so just just the idea of of loving yourself. And loving who you are and knowing who you you are in Christ, I think that that is a that that is a that that is really good that that's a really good starting point. And so then, in realizing who you are in Christ, you automatically start to love your blackness because you see your blackness as something that is part of you and something that God created and said was good, rather than something that has to be mitigated or navigated around. Because that is what wow. that that's what Oof. white theology, that's what white theological culture, that's that's how we've been treated. Is that that you know they they talk about um, W. B. Du Bois and different people kind of around you know, the the, the uh, Reconstruction and post Reconstruction era. There was this idea of the Negro problem, and the Negro problem wasn't just black people, but it was that it was that we had we had dark skin. We had we had Negro blood. We were of the Negro mm. race. And so it's and so that that theology has has been that it that it was it was theology, but it wasn't necessarily um articulated in that way. But this idea that blackness is something that has to be navigated around. And and we see this even in some of the circles that we run in where it's like you're 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 a theo- you're a theologian, but you're also black, and so you know you have to do theology in a certain way that that shows right. that you're okay, that shows that, that or you need to be policed. Yeah, you need because to be you policed. need to you need to show that you that you have all of your bona fides. So you know, don't quote Cone, don't quote. Hopkins, don't quote um, uh, Williams, don't don't quote some of these. Yeah, JD yes, Roberts. Don't don't don't, don't yeah. quote some of these people. Or if you're going to quote them, because if you're going to quote them, you also need to make sure that you throw in some Maltman and some Bart. And depending on what circle you're in, maybe maybe some Paul Tillich, but not a but not a whole lot. Um, like like yeah, Calvin, Calvin Luther, Luther, like like you know yeah. you know. Let's make sure you know, Augustine, even though you know he was African, but but we claim him as a white man, like. Um, 
but like uh, even, even, though, even though he's from Africa, from, from, from mm. Africa, but but we we gonna claim him as a white man. Like like make sure that you're that you're staying within with within the the, the path within within the, the the predetermined within the predetermined sphere. So we see so we see that even in our in, in some of our some of our walks, and so I think that. For us, when we love our blackness, when we realize I'm black, God created me as black. This is who I am, and we see it as something that is that is important and vital, and it informs who we are, rather than something that we have to kind of be ashamed of and have to kind of hide and have to see it as something to work around. I think that that's, that that is really theologically where where a lot of what we've said, even in this podcast, can be summed up in that. Wow. Well, that's a perfect place to to wrap the podcast up. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. I hope everybody is. Locked into combing the roots, subscribed, rated, and reviewed, and that you keep up with every episode because this is the type of wisdom and insight that you receive from her on a regular basis. Ali, thank you again so much for being on the road and still tuning in and giving us that that fire on Pastor Mike. We appreciate you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.